Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the winter of 2020, the writer Annabelle Abstreets experienced a series of losses. Her stepfather, then father, and finally her family's puppy. Unmoored by grief, she couldn't sleep, but she discovered something surprising. During her wakeful nights, the darkness became a place of sanctuary, filled with creativity, reflection, and wonder. And once she stopped fighting her insomnia, as she tapped into something mysterious and beguiling, her night self. Today we're going to talk uh, with uh, Annabelle Abstreets about her book, Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. Annabelle Abstreets is an award-winning author of seven books, most recently Windswept, Walking the Paths of Trailblazing Women, voted a top 10 2021 travel book, and 52 Ways to Walk, an Amazon bestseller. Her work has been translated into 30 languages. She's a fellow of the Brown Foundation, writes regularly for a wide variety of media, often appears on radio, TV, and podcasts. She lives in London and Sussex with her family. Annabelle Abstreet's a pleasure to welcome you to, to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Uh, so you're talking to me from London, is it? Yes, I'm in London at the moment, where it's uh, cloudy, as usual. <laughs> okay, yeah, cloudy here as well, a little bit of rain. Uh, through the magic of Zoom, you never, uh, you know, uh, talk to anybody anywhere around the world. So this is wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I want to have you talk about the the, the beginnings here. Uh, this is COVID times, right? And you had yeah. these series of losses. Uh, it must have been must have been very very hard. It was hard because the losses all came together, one after another, and they were all unexpected. And, and out of the blue. So each one came with uh, a certain amount of, of shock, uh, apart, apart from one, actually. But that was a sort of a, a COVID death that had been in a COVID home where no one, it was my stepfather. None of us were able to see him. I hadn't seen him for months. They wouldn't let us in when he died. So, so that, that came with a level of trauma, uh, which was particular, I think, to COVID. And many of us went through COVID deaths. They were very unpleasant. But then the two deaths after that were just bolts out of the blue. So you know what it's like when you're already reeling from one uh, tragedy, then to have two in quick succession um, at, at a time really when, you know, we were all sort of, we were all grieving really during the pandemic. I think we were all sort of grieving for our lost lives and, you know, our past and, and the old way of life we'd known. So against that backdrop of grief, I had all these other other sort of bereavements going on. So my sleep, which had never been good, I'd always had insomnia, it suddenly spiraled out of control. And suddenly I just was not sleeping at all. And I felt that I had all these things, I had all these things I had to process. And the only time I could do it was at night because the days were so busy, looking after two bereaved mothers, a mother and a stepmother who were both you know, in isolation and suddenly alone looking after my four children who had lost their puppy, uh, looking after everything, all the funeral arrangements, you know, the the obituaries, the attempts at having a wake, all of those sorts of things that we were trying to do in lockdown sort of took up all my brain during the day. And at night, I suddenly needed that time to to be awake, really. And I, I didn't I didn't I didn't really want to be asleep. I mean, it did get quite it did get quite difficult. But then I was in the situation where I thought, okay, I've got two choices. One is I go to my my doctor, my physician, and I ask for, uh, you know, medication, uh, sleeping pills. And the other one is I just I just go with this sort of insomniac journey, and I'll see where it takes me. And I chose I chose the latter. I chose to go with the darkness. 
so tell me about when when you first were experiencing this uh, insomnia. I guess you call it right. Um, you you say you were sleeping in your your father's study, right? The orange uh, sheets, <laughs> um, surrounded by his books, his smell, everything. Um, I guess that first night was was a pretty good night's sleep, and and you 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 write that uh, that you know the the body has a way of taking care of us. You kind of shut you down, but after that, um, just awake all night or pretty much all night. Uh, certainly. Well, I was, I'd usually fall asleep for a couple of hours because I was just so exhausted. So you know, like so ten till twelve, I'd be fast asleep. And then I would just wake up, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know this. You wake up and you are just wide awake. There's no sort of slow, dreamy transition. It's just you're suddenly your brain is just fizzing. And at that stage, you really know that you're probably not going to get back to sleep for quite a long time. So initially, I did what I'd always done. I just sort of lay there. I thought if I lie very, very still, you know, I will, and I don't do anything. I will go back to sleep. But it soon became apparent that that wasn't going to be the way. I was not going to be going back to sleep. Um, and at this stage, I was actually already researching. I was researching women of the past who had not slept because I'd already got this book commissioned. It's a different book, actually, but a book about people not sleeping. So I, I'd already started researching a whole series of people from the pre-sleeping pill past because I was intrigued by our ancestors and and how they had coped with insomnia or perhaps they hadn't had insomnia I wasn't quite sure so I was, I was deep into research so I felt already that there was a way forward because I was reading you know all these journals and uh, diaries and letters which showed that people in the past really didn't have this sort of idyllic eight hours sleep that we like to think our ancestors had they didn't sleep like that a lot of them slept in two phases sort of biphasic sleep, so a first sleep and a second sleep. A lot of women in particular were up all night, either caring for, you know, babies and uh, sick and dying children and also caring for uh, neighbours and parents and relatives because there were no hospitals then. Uh, and then there was another set of women that used the nights to do something for themselves because it was the only time they had so these women were getting up and uh, a lot of them were praying. So it was a, certainly a very spiritual time. But a lot of them were also writing. They were uh, drawing. They were painting. They were embroidering. So for many women, some men too, but particularly for women, it was a it, it was a very creative, calm time. And I thought, well, you know what? They all a lot of them survived. They didn't they didn't have dementia and obesity and type two diabetes. All the illnesses that we're told we will get if we do not have our eight hours of sleep. They they didn't suffer from that. So, you know, I thought perhaps some of the headlines are misleading, which I discovered a lot of them were. Uh, and I thought, well, perhaps there's also scope to explore what the night can can give me at a time when I, I didn't really have any option. And the night was suddenly becoming more and more appealing. So uh, it became a sort of an opportunity, really, a sort of little window for, for uh, not only thinking, uh, about the people I'd lost, but also for doing things I would never normally have done. Uh, and one of the things I discovered, that I started to really think about this in, in quite a lot of detail, because I started to realise that my brain was a little bit different at night. And so was the brain of all of these people in the past who had you know, got up and, and you know did their journaling or wrote poetry. 
a lot of them would say, you know, I, I'm different at night. I, I feel different. I think differently. My, my drawings are different. My writings are different. And I was noticing the same thing. But when I started looking into sci the science, I thought, oh, there's bound to be loads of studies on this. There was nothing. There was a lot of research done on the sleeping brain, which we understand pretty well now. There was a lot of research done on sleep deprivation because, you know, in industry is very worried about sleep deprivation. It doesn't want to have sleep deprived employees. Uh, but there was nothing on the awake at night brain until I was halfway through my book, just sort of groping around in the dark, really, just thinking, "Am I? is it just me that has this theory? You know, this is why has no one looked at this? And suddenly, I think it was in 2022, a study landed on my desk and it was called The Mind After Midnight. And it was done by a bunch of sleep scientists uh, across America who had all sort of, I think, got together, collaborated on this one study. And this study went into all the sort of the, the biochemistry of the brain and showed that the brain really does rewire for night uh, in many, many, many different ways. And so this that was when the penny dropped. I thought, OK, something is happening. It's not just it's not just me going a bit mad. Uh, and all these other people are being a little bit loopy at night. You know, the brain is slightly different. It's a little bit more uh, reckless for many people. It's uh, more creative and imaginative for many, many people. It's more reflective. Uh, it's, um, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's whimsical. You know, sometimes one has quite strange thoughts at night and they're often the sort of thoughts that you wouldn't have during the day or that I think perhaps you would suppress during the day. And at night, they just seem to float around. So there was a lot of um, there was a lot of data there on on the rewired brain, which made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then from there, I just carried on. You know, talking to talking to neuroscientists and sleep scientists, and you know, just investigating sort of more and more deeply into the brain and the body at night, and also the effect of external darkness. Uh, and it seemed to, and it seemed to me that I had this this version of myself who I called perhaps a little bit unimaginatively, I called my night self. And she was the one who would appear at night. Of course, she, she's me, but she's also a little bit different. And um, she and myself, we would start doing things that other people had done in the past, you know, whether that was um, drawing, whether that was writing, whether that was stargazing, whether that was going out walking. Uh, and over a period of about a year, I went through a whole stage were different stages of exploring darkness and exploring the night and that also had the rather wonderful effect of sorting out my insomnia completely so it was it was quite fortuitous hmm. um uh, maybe tell me about that 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 journey that, that you took you, you this became a space comforting space where you could actually grieve at your day self was uh, you know, busy. You're trying to trying to do everything for everybody, but the the night was a, was a space, a place of refuge. You write. Um, in fact, you say, I recall clearly a sense of being held by the darkness, never pressed upon me, simply held me. So uh, you you started going a little farther and farther afield, right? Started on your terrace, and then it go for mm -hmm. little walks, and then maybe longer walks. So tell me about that. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. So I started. A very close, well, I started very close to. I started by just staying in my bed and exploring, exploring. That was reflective, really. Uh, but I did a lot of research into the nun, nuns and monks of the past who had always, uh, every three hours, would rise to pray, and their longest night service was matins, which was at three a.m. 
So that 3 a.m. slot, and if you talk to people who don't sleep very well, they'll always say, oh, God, 3 a.m., always wake up at 3 a.m. But for monks and nuns, you know, that was the hour of God. So my first phase of sleeplessness was indoors, sort of with my own hour of God, just sort of, you know, trying to process. But then one night I it started by just I just looked out of the window and I saw the night sky. And I don't know where I've been for the last few decades, but I don't think I've ever looked up. So it was a complete shock to me. I saw all these stars. This wasn't in London. This was down in the we have a very small cottage in the in a countryside. It's actually on the edge of a dark sky reserve. Uh, but I'd always been busy, you know, I'd, getting out of the car and running to the house when it was dark or looking down. I just don't think I'd been out in the dark. But on this night, I looked up and it was a very, very clear sky and the stars were very, very bright. And I was completely bowled over by the dazzling beauty of it. And I was also a little bit shocked. I thought, why have I never seen this before? So I uh, I quickly enrolled on a, a six week astronomy course because I thought I want to I want to understand I want to understand what the constellations are and why they why they move at night and the phases of the moon and I went to a, an observatory which was about 20 miles from my house a, a big observatory and, and they ran this course so so I sort of started to learn about the night I started to learn about uh, uh, you know stargazers of the past who would not work on screens like astronomers do now they had to they had to watch they had to observe all night long from their from their rooftops and then from there, one night, I, one night, it was just a very clear night. And I thought, I'll just lie. I've got a little bit of roof terrace just outside my bedroom window. Very, very flimsy. I thought, I'll just lie out there and look at the stars. And uh, I thought, well, I need a mattress. So I, I took a mattress out and I lay there. And uh, I just I just felt incredibly calm. And I started to fall asleep. It was only about eight o'clock in the evening. And normally, of course, then I'd be sort of fairly wide awake. But I just started to fall asleep. And I sort of woke up and I thought, oh, God, I'm still outside. And I looked up and the sky, it was there. The moon had moved a bit. You know, the stars had changed around. And I was so sort of smitten with the with the sky. I thought, oh, I'm going to sleep out here. So I made myself a proper bed, you know, duvet and pillows. None of that, none of that camping stuff. I was going to do this properly. And from that point on, whenever, whenever it was dry, and we do get quite a lot of rain here in the UK, but whenever it was dry, I would take the mattress out onto this little tiny bit of roof. Uh, and and sleep outside. So that was my first my first experience really of of being you know, really in touch with the night and really in touch with darkness and having it all around me. And it felt incredibly safe. And that also surprised me because I'd always been a bit frightened of the dark. And um, as a child, I had been sort of absolutely terrified of being alone in the dark. But there I was alone on this roof uh, outside. And it didn't, I, did, I felt as though I was companioned, as though I had, you know, my friends around me, these, these stars were sort of, uh, sort of companions, if you like. Uh, of course, my family thought I was completely bonkers, but <laughs> I think they just thought I was, you know, grief stricken, mad with grief, grief stricken. So they sort of let me get away with it. Um, so, and then from that point, I started to do other things. I started then to slowly venture out a little bit further. Uh, I started going for walks at night, uh, usually, you know, anytime really from 1am, 2am. When I woke up, I would get up. Uh, I'd keep my pyjamas on, but I would just put a coat on and my, my um, we call them Wellington boots. I think, do you call them galoshes? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. <clears throat> Rubber boots. And I would just go and sort of, and go for little walks around the fields, um, through the trees. Uh, and I started to take more notice of what was going on around me. 
the different insects, the different smells. Like I didn't know, for example, that some plants only only release their perfume at night, but I'd be walking along. I think I, I've smelled something, you know, I'm smelling something I haven't smelled before. And I would go home and do a bit of research and find out this was a, a, a night flowering plant that only gives off its its perfume at night. Uh, I discovered little like glowworms. I heard owls. I discovered you know nocturnally migrating birds. I had no idea that birds migrated at night, but they they go over in these huge flocks, and they're not that they're sort of silent. But you you're lying there and you just hear the beating of wings. And first of all, you think, oh God, what's happening? <laughs> are the ghosts coming? What earth's going on? And then you just sense these birds just flying over you. So there were a lot of things that I found really sort of mysterious, but also rather magical because at night you can't you can't see you're very reliant on your other senses uh, everything has a certain mystery to it and this is partly partly your rewired brain because the bit of the brain we have that, that is yeah, that sits right behind our forehead it's the most evolved brain part and it's called the prefrontal cortex and that bit of the brain is the one that sort of keeps our emotions in check it's very, very rational. It's very ordered and methodical and logical and a little bit judgmental and it assesses and it evaluates. That bit of the brain shuts down at night. It sort of goes to sleep. So a lot of the things that I think if I'd seen them during the day, I would have just dismissed them at night. You know, they they took on they took on this sort of extra, extra special meaning in a way, uh, which I think when you're grieving, I think you sort of need that. You sort of want to know that there is another world, that there is somewhere else. Um, and and at night, I did get a sense. You know, the world is very thin at night. You do feel that you could, you know, you can put your hands through that veil and that there could be another world there. Now, that's the sort of thought that during the day, my brain, which is very rational, would say, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, just, you know, just that's ridiculous. But at night, my brain didn't say that to me. My brain said, yes, why not? You know, of course. So I, I liked that more reflective, more contemplative, more mysterious way of thinking. That still really only comes to me at night. I think part of this was grieving, right? And you're, you write that uh, part of what you're doing, in a way, you're searching for your father. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I mean, I think... I, I think to to an extent we all do that when we're faced with very sudden loss. So there's a, there's a sort of violence to um, some unexpected loss. It's different from if you lose uh, a loved one to you know a slow lingering. I mean, horrible slow lingering death of cancer, for example, but where you might have several months, possibly even years to adjust to the loss to just gradually get used to the fact that your your life is going to be without that person uh, not to say that that's better you know neither sort of grief is, is better or worse but when the death is completely out of the blue and you just weren't expecting it and you've just been told that this person has a clean bill of health which is what happened to my father then um then the, the brain really i think the brain struggles it's it's sort of partly a shock but it's partly that there's been no time to acclimatize. So the night for me gave me that place and time to, to acclimatize, to believe rationally or irrationally that, that there might be another world. I, I mean, I, I, my view obviously slightly different now, but, but that helped me, I think, to, to cope with, with all the deaths. 
uh, there was another death actually it was a fourth death which I didn't I didn't put into the book because it was just my, my editor said just too many <laughs> but there was the, a friend of my uh, daughter's who had taken his own life he was 17 and that was in some ways that was the, the most cruel and shocking of all the deaths because of his youth but but those sorts of deaths I think are really emotionally complicated for us uh, psychologically complicated for us and so so sort of night night sort of became a place where i could make i could make sense of it if that makes sense to yes, you yes yes definitely does uh if you just joined us we're talking uh, on access utah with the writer annabelle and app streets uh, her new book uh is sleepless unleashing the subversive power of the night self and we'll have more following this brief break You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Annabelle Abstreet's uh, latest book is a fascinating book. It's called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. In the winter of 2020, uh, she experienced a series of losses, her stepfather, then father, and finally her family's puppy. Uh, unmoored by grief, she couldn't sleep, but she discovered something surprising. During her wakeful nights, the darkness became a place of sanctuary. and She discovered her what she called her night self. Uh, so, Annabelle Abstreet's, um, I want to have you talk about what you came to call your night spinners. These are, I guess, women from the past, contemporary women, um, who found that they that their night selves uh, could unleash the creativity. Uh, many of these are artists, right, and writers, Louise Bourgeois, Lee Krasner, um, uh, let's see, Virginia Woolf, yes. uh, another Emily one. Emily Dickinson. Yeah, uh, tell me a bit about these these women. Yeah, so so my night spinners are mostly female, but I should say, uh, for your, to be fair to your listeners, there are a lot of there are a lot of men who can't sleep, and there were also a lot of men who were up at night writing and walking and stargazing and painting. So it's not it's not particular to women, but for women, it was often the only time they had. So someone like Charles Dickens. Uh, he was a terrible insomniac and he would walk sometimes 30 miles in a night. But he also he didn't have the the sort of the, the endless list of chores to do during the day. He also could write during the day. But for women, it was often the only time. So that was that's the only thing I would I would say about that. But these these women, these night, my night spinners, I call them, really became my source of inspiration so whenever I started to worry about the amount of time that I was spending, you know, not sleeping, uh, which, of course, we all worry about now. We're all, we're all told, you know, that bad, we're bad sleepers, which makes us feel bad. But I would think about these women. I would think of you know, Emily Dickinson and Louise Bourgeois and Lee Krasner, who would often uh, produce some of their very best work in the night. And this I found quite inspiring. Uh, certainly it helped me to 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 not fret and it also told me to uh not ruminate because i think the night self that we all and and your listeners too will all know is that ruminating night self and that's the that's the person when we wake up in the night the person who just feels you know terrible guilt or terrible regret or remorse and we ruminate and things go round and round and round and that is very much a part of you know the the collective night self. So we all do that. But that isn't because there's anything wrong with us or we're depressed or whatever. It's because that's what happens to the brain at night. It does have this tendency to be quite 
wistful and negative. And that's really, it's just hormones. It's because our the hormones that keep us alert and cheerful during the day, as a hormones like serotonin and, and cortisol, just they just slip away at night, then we don't produce them at night. So that will often, that sort of explains why we often can feel a little bit, um, um, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm wistful, I think, is, is the word I would use. Sometimes we can feel a little bit sad or a little bit down. Um, but again, it's our, it's, our, it's our hormones. So once I learned that that ruminating voice can just be turned off and dialed down, as all of these night spinners had done, that was a revelation because I thought, okay, I don't need to, I don't need to ruminate. I too can, you know, have a go at um, writing poetry, or I too can have a go at uh, sketching. I too can get out my binoculars and go and look at the stars. And it doesn't matter if I if I feel a little bit sad. That's just my that's just my night self. She's always going to have that slight tendency. Um, but being able to, I think, I think once you understand what's happening to your brain at night and your body. Uh, you can start to you can start to work with that and you can start to say okay you know hello night self I know you might you might be feeling a little bit grouchy or a little bit wistful but I'm not going to listen to you because I know there's another there's another version a more creative imaginative version and that's what I want to encounter tonight so so my thing when I when I don't sleep mostly I do sleep now but I still have the odd night my thing is to write uh, poetry and lyrics which are things I would never, ever in a million years do during the day because my day brain would say, uh, first of all, you're no good at that. Secondly, that's not your thing. You know, you, you can't do that. You're no good and it's not your thing anyway. And and C, my day brain would say, that's not remotely productive. <laughs> There's no money there, you know. You can't. You, you just got to forget about that. But at, at night, uh, you're not thinking like that. You're thinking You're thinking in a more uh, free-form way, uh, and again, this partly goes back to that bit of the brain I was talking about, the, the prefrontal cortex, which judges you. That's where our inner critic sits. You know, it sits and tells us what we can and can't do, what we should and shouldn't do. So when that bit goes to sleep, you know, you, you do feel as though your inner critic has, has backed off a bit. So you do so you do things, you paint, you draw, you embroider, you, you redesign your kitchen, your garden, whatever it is, without that little voice on your shoulder saying, you know, that's hopeless, that's terrible. So I really, I really liked that aspect of the night self, which seemed to come through in in a lot of the night spinners too. They were often more bold, but much more bold in the things they produced at night. Um, it, was, it was quite intriguing. One thing I learned from your book: uh, the prefrontal cortex apparently is larger and more active in women, and so maybe that inner critic, uh, you know, maybe more active during the, during your day self. I guess one one implication for men: uh, their night selves could perhaps. Uh, tend to reckless behavior at night. Yeah, so the the night brain in both in both sexes uh, can be a little bit more reckless, and that's one of the things that came out of the the mind after midnight report. Um, and of course, we're all different, and not everyone is going to wake up and want to do something reckless. But it did seem to be a little bit more marked, uh, a little bit more marked in in men but even women were a little bit more reckless at night and and they looked at things in that report they look at things like um you know people smokers so so reformed smokers were much more likely to start smoking if it was the middle of the night uh people who were on diets were much more likely to you know to drop the diet in the middle of the night so we're not quite as um self-controlled in the middle of the night 
So I think you have to, and you just have to sort of keep an eye, you keep an eye on that because, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you have to work out. Um, so so that's, that's the good thing about creative work, really. You can be, you're, you can be reckless on the page. You can recklessly write poetry. You can recklessly sketch. That's very different from recklessly thinking, oh, I'll just crack open the brandy or I'll, you know, I'll do something else a little bit reckless that might be dangerous. So there's really nothing dangerous about, um, you know, doing a bit of journaling or a bit of sketching. But I did feel that when I was out, when I was out walking at night, that I should have should have felt more reckless then. And in the countryside, I did. I did feel quite reckless, actually. But in the city, when I tried, I tried night walking, you know, at three or four a.m. in London, and I didn't like it at all. Uh, I think I tried it twice, and I j it just, you know, it just was not for me. I was clearly not quite reckless enough <laughs> to do that. But out in the countryside, um, that was a different. That was a slightly different sort of recklessness because part of my, I still had a rational part of my brain that was awake, and it was saying, you know, there's nobody here. There's just a few sheep. You're fine. Uh, so it's it's that it's getting that balance. But the other thing about darkness, which is really interesting, is that you know, as soon as the darkness rolls in, not only does our brain start uh, rewiring with with different hormones, but also we react to the darkness with very very uh, prime with very sort of primal emotions. So there is a, uh, a you know a, a vigilance that comes with the darkness, particularly if you're on your own. So if you're with a group of people, I think I. I don't think you experience it, but if you're on your own and you're somewhere isolated, you're, you know, you're sort of slightly permanently on edge. And I think they've noticed this also in people who are sleeping in different places, you know, unfamiliar rooms for the first time. They People don't sleep as deeply. Um, they're sort of a little bit more aware. Uh, and this is a very, very age old response, really, to the darkness. And it's, keep, you know, keeping us safe. But it also means that, you know, we... We, we're slightly um, vigilant, sort of vigilantelish. That's a word. We're slightly more vigilante. I've got that word right, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Vigilant. We're slightly more vigilant at night and, and perhaps quite quick. So if you're out walking at night, you will hear the smallest of sounds and you'll hear it instantaneously before you even have time to process it. So um, that sense that you're you're really living in a very embodied way, you know, you're, all your senses are working. Um, and I quite liked that in a sense, because during the day, I think we're often uh, we're often sort of walking blindly around, aren't we? Because we know with everything is so familiar. We don't really pay attention. We're not certainly not noticing smells. We're not noticing what the ground feels like under our feet. But at night, everything is very alert and very, very sort of mindful, really. You're completely in the moment. You haven't you haven't got the headspace to think about, you know, what you need to do tomorrow or what you what you're gonna to have to breakfast because your whole body is concentrating on keeping you safe. Um you've talked about how uh in the night uh time is different. It's it's not clock time. It's different kind of time. Yeah, it's it's very different. Um, particularly if you are not looking at a clock, if you if you start looking at your phone or you have a clock by your bed, you become uh, sort of hyper aware of time because there's there's nothing else to distract you. But if you are just in the darkness and you're not fitting on your phone, you can't see anything. Um, time seems to dilate. It seems to follow a completely different rhythm. Sometimes it seems to go very very fast, and sometimes it goes very very slowly. And you get a sense really that at night time is uh, circular rather than linear. 
And I think that's partly to do with with this feeling that that you are quite close to some other some other strange some other strange world is is you know sort of at your fingertips. Uh, so it's um, so that's different. And I did really enjoy experiencing a different way of time. Uh, and I think I called it I called it I used to call it dark time because it 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 sort of followed its own its own rhythm. But interestingly, the women of the past, you know, they would monitor time at night really by looking out at the stars and seeing you know how far the moon had moved or how far a particular constellation had moved um, because they didn't have clocks you know, three or four hundred years ago. So their sense of time was really um, you know, they literally navigated time using using the stars. Uh, and I, I tried a bit of that, but my astronomy wasn't wasn't really good enough. Uh, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with uh, the writer Annabelle Abstreets. The latest book is called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. We'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Annabelle Abstreets. The latest book is Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. And we're uh, glad to have uh, Annabelle Abstreets talking to us by Zoom from London. Um, so Annabelle Abstreets, uh, I wonder, um, you discovered your night self, discovered all these other people that had their the night self. Uh, this helped you to work through grief and uh, taught you other lessons. Um, now that you're back sleeping more, has your night self taught your day self uh, anything? What lessons do you do you draw? Oh, that's such a good question. Yes, definitely. I think um, she, I'll talk about her in the third person. <laughs> she has taught me, my night self has taught me to be much more at ease with uncertainty, to be more at ease with mystery, not 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 to have to know everything all the time not to have to try and find answers every time but sometimes just to accept to accept things which i wasn't particularly good at um uh, she has taught me to i think to 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 she's taught me that you know there are some things that do have a magic and a mystery and i shouldn't just be shutting them down because they don't seem to make sense during the day but that i should welcome them into my life if you like because they're there to in to enrich our lives one of the experiences i had after my father died and i've since discovered this is really quite common but you know we had a whole succession of birds coming to us i mean and some bizarre birds like a golden eagle we saw this golden eagle you know twice and there really aren't golden eagles <laughs> where i live but there were many many birds they kept coming they we would find we found one in the caught in the drain pipe then hundreds came and roosted in trees then they would get trapped in the house you know there's just birds all the time and uh my husband is very rational and would say um no 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 they've always been there you just didn't notice them and during the day i think yes yes that it's just coincidence you know silly me just coincidence but at night i was my, my night self would say no you know that the birds have they've come they've come to you as as consolation you know just just accept it stop questioning it so that now I think it's part of my my day self because I'm just a little bit more um, open, open minded, I think probably is the word. So I'm certainly a bit more open minded. And I'm also much less, I'm much less afraid of the dark, but I'm much less afraid of sleeplessness and insomnia. And I'm much less inclined to fret. So if I do wake up now in the night, 
uh, I will I will just get, I have a little notebook. I have a candle by my bed. I just light the candle. I have a notebook without lines so that I don't worry about the lines. I have a pencil, not a pen, because I kept getting pen everywhere in the dark. And I just open up my notebook and I just start writing. You know, I just write whatever I feel like writing. And I've found that that will often uh, sort of rid me of whatever has woken me up. So, you know, I think often when we wake up, there's something nagging at our mind and it could be it could be something so small that we're not even aware of it. But if you just get a pen and paper out and just start writing, it seems to purge something. And then I will just go back to sleep. And um, I think that's a really, really good life lesson. And I would say my night self taught me that rather than my fretful, my fretful day self. Um, but you know we're all we're all different, and we all respond differently to um, sleep deprivation and to darkness. So I think it's important, really, that we all we all work out, we all try and find who our night self is, because they're all going to be a bit different, and that you learn to live alongside that version of yourself and to learn from him or her if you can. Uh, how did it happen? Uh, what were the factors that, that uh, returned you to to sleep? You say you 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 know never been a great sleeper. I don't know if you are now, but uh, you, you um, I guess you now sleep more at night. Yeah, the other thing that really helped with with that was understanding the history of sleep. And sleep scientists don't always know about the history of sleep because they're very busy in their labs doing you know complicated experiments. But if you look back through history. Um, certainly if you go back to about the 17th century before the industrial revolution lots of people slept in two chunks so they would talk about their first sleep and their second sleep and it was quite common between the first sleep and the second sleep for men and women to get up and go and do things and you can find details of this when you're going through letters journals and diaries they will often talk about I had my had my first sleep and then I got up and went and had a cup of tea with my neighbor or I had my first sleep and then I got up and I, I, you know, I did some knitting. And at first I was thinking, gosh, this is extraordinary. But then, of course, I found that there was a, book, a historian who had already written a whole history of sleep. And he had uncovered a lot of the evidence that suggested this was a very normal way to sleep. So I think you know, for a lot of us, we, when we wake up, we think that that's bad sleep and it's not right and it's not healthy. But actually, I think that's a very uh, sort of ancestral way of sleeping. And we're just sleeping in the way that our our distant forebears did, uh, and they they didn't have any of the headlines that we have to deal with. You know, it was, they certainly didn't have sleeping pills, but they didn't have any of the you know the sleep experts urging us to get our seven or eight hours, or else you know we'll we'll have terrible ill health. So they weren't aware of any danger. So they just treated it as perfectly normal uh, to you know to get up and and there were obviously lots and lots of people up because the number of times people say, oh, I, I went and had a cup of tea with my aunt or. <laughs> which seems very odd to us but when you when you accept that and then you wake up you think okay there are probably you know millions and millions of people awake alongside me right now and we're all just fretting and tossing and turning but actually maybe what we should do is we should all we should all somehow hang out together calm <laughs> yeah, each other down that's right um so uh, we know that uh, this book, of course, is about uh, the upsides of wakefulness, you know, discovering your night self, creativity, and, and all the rest. Um, but sleep deprivation can be bad, right? A lot of bad health effects. Uh, how, do you, how do you reconcile those two? Well, sleep deprivation is not very nice, that's true. It, it seems to be less detrimental um, than we 
been led to believe more and more studies are starting to show now that it's not sleep deprivation that causes Alzheimer's, for example. Uh, and it's not sleep deprivation that causes some of the other things we've been told. But what does cause it is what people do when they're awake. So if you're awake at night and either very, very stressed and anxious or you're eating and smoking and drinking, you know, those are the things that are contributing to um, to the health effects of sleep deprivation as, a, as opposed to the lack of sleep itself. So we have always been uh, a little bit sleep deprived on occasion. So we will always have nights when we sleep well and nights when we don't sleep so well. And this has been going on for eternity. Um, but I do have some, I do have, oh, I, I did have some quite strict rules for myself on days when I was very sleep deprived when I'd been awake all night. I would always try and factor some time in the afternoon to have a little nap. And I'm lucky that I, I work at home. I can do that. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, there were certain times of the day when I wouldn't drive. So I always knew that if I'd been awake a lot during the night, that I'd be fine in the morning. Uh, but in the afternoon, I would really have a slump. So I'd always make sure that I wasn't driving my car on those moments when you're having a slump. So I think people who are insomniac, you know, and are really struggling with sleep, the first thing is to know to know your own pattern on the subsequent day, to know how you behave when you're sleep deprived and where your where your frailties are really. Uh, you know, it can be easy when you're sleep deprived to be a little bit more emotional. So I would always you know try to think before think before I snap or speak. Uh, you do feel much hungrier. So again, I have to be really vigilant about you know not not eating and eating because you know as soon as you as soon as you've had a night of no sleep, your body is just telling you to eat to eat you know sweet, sugary, fatty carbohydrate foods you, you crave it because you need the energy and you just have to say no I'm, I'm not going to do that I'm going to I'm going to have a you know a slice of brown bread and a piece of cheese or something so I think once you know about sleep deprivation and you know your own body uh, it's much easier to try and work with it and I think once you rid yourself of the anxiety of being awake I think it's much easier to return to sleep and I think also the sleep deprivation after a, an exciting night is much, 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 much less um, difficult than the sleep deprivation after a, a night of tossing and turning. And the way I explain that to people is, you know, if you if you have been out to a really good party and you don't get enough sleep and you wake up the next day, you're a little bit weary, but you're but you're also a little bit buzzy because it was such a good party. And that sort of sleep that sort of tiredness is very very different from the tiredness when you've been awake all night really getting angry and stressful and upset you know that they're, they're they're like apples and pears they're completely different if that also makes sense yes it does and i appreciate that advice. that's that's going to help me next time i have some insomnia uh you know don't don't lean into the anxiety uh get up do something right and then come back um because that anxiety can be a downward spiral you're you're stressed all night, anxious that you're not sleeping. That's right, and then you really don't get back to sleep at all. Yeah, uh, and and that is that. I think, and sometimes I think the stress is more detrimental than the lack of sleep. 
Well, a fascinating book. We've reached the end of our time. Uh, much else to discover in the book, uh, so I hope you'll go out and get it. Uh, it's out and available now. It's called Sleepless, Unleashing the, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. We've been talking with the writer Annabelle Abstreets. You can find her at AnnabelleAbs.com, and uh, we've reached her by Zoom uh, in uh, London. Uh, Annabelle Abstreets, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. They were great questions, Tom. Thank you, and uh, good luck with the, with the book. And sleep well. Okay, I'll sleep well, yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bye now. Thanks. Bye. Many cultures, one sky. Sky Watcher Leo T reporting. Looking up and traveling at the speed of light, we can view a Venus Mars conjunction from Terra Firma, the snow moon, and Da Vinci Glow, February's night sky. In 2024 is an amazing month to check out the outdoor sights in the morning, midday, afternoon, turning to dusk and into the dark and darker yet. It may be a little chilly in the northern hemisphere, but spectacular celestial sights await, including a rare conjunction of Venus and Mars, a well-placed foggy Orion Nebula, and the rise of the full snow moon, and moon hopping over to moons of Mars. The Mars rover captured the moon whizzing by the sun's outline. Moons and other planets also experience spectacular solar eclipses as moons pass in front of the solar system's sun. Two months before, a total solar eclipse is expected to shroud a long swath of North America in darkness. Mars experienced an eclipse of its own. Time-lapse of photos taken by NASA's Perseverance rover last week shows the red planet's moon, Phobos, crossing in front of the sun, creating an eye-catching sight. This is from Mars's Jezero crater. Now let's take this month's long gravity arc back to our own beautiful blue marble, where it's the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, ending right to abortion upheld for decades. In the historic, far-reaching decision, the U.S. Supreme Court officially reversed Roe v. Wade in 2022, declaring the constitutional right to abortion upheld for nearly a half-century no longer exists. Writing for the court majority, Justice Samuel Alito said that the 1973 Roe ruling uh, repeated subsequent high court decisions reaffirming Roe must be overruled because they, the argument's exceptionally weak and so damage is what they amounted to to an abuse of judicial authority. Hmm, flip the twist, huh? The little Skywatcher spaceship out into orbit and then arced one of the latest space mysteries. How would you feel to travel the speed of light? What would happen if you moved at the speed of light? Impossible now, but in science fiction, which many times leads the way in true science, ended up with space flight, Velcro, and medical breakthroughs. If people using scientific method and Einstein figure out a way to move at the speed of light, you would find yourself asking, could your body survive going so fast? Well, let's assume that it is possible, though, for a human to move at the speed of light, which is a traveling speed at 186,000 miles per second. Animals or people moving at a very fast constant speed can't feel constant velocity, so you might not even notice that you were moving that fast. The biggest issue would be acceleration. Actually reaching that speed, too much acceleration can hurt and even kill us. Your blood will have a hard time pumping to your extremities, said Michael Provaki, a professor of physics at UNLV. Cool photo, along with the other stories represented in this Skywatcher episode, Skywatcher Facebook page. Let's get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.